Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman and part of his five-week presentation, Creation in the Old Testament, a series of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, Creation and Chaos, Part 1, recorded in September 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. We're here to talk about one of the most important themes uh, in Scripture. And by Scripture, I mean both for Christians, for Jews, and even for Muslims, although we're not going to be looking at Muslim texts that have to do with creation. But uh, creation. What is creation and why is it important? Uh, When we think of creation and the Bible... We probably first, what first comes to mind is probably in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. They think of the first three chapters of Genesis actually, right? And some people think that that's, well, we got creation out of the way, now let's do something else. Uh, As though that is the only part of the Bible that talks about creation. Um, It does talk about creation and we will actually talk about those stories tonight as part of our program. But one of the things I like to do when I teach scripture is try to make it less familiar to us. We assume that that, that it's familiar to us, we know what it's about, and it's just a matter of telling us what we already know. Uh, What I'd like to do is to make these stories, um, the creation of the world in six days, the Garden of Eden, I want these stories which might seem very familiar to us to become strange again, strange and wonderful. And... We are going to be spending the next five weeks, or at least I will be spending the next five weeks, I hope some of you will be here, Um, we'll be spending the next five weeks looking at creation as a theme throughout the Old Testament, or the Tanakh, if I want to use Jewish language here, and uh, we'll see for one thing that um, it is pervasive, it's a pervasive idea. I have not counted all the different creation stories there are in the Old Testament, but there's a lot. What I want to do today is talk about what I consider to be the most common, typical type of creation story in the Old Testament. And that is a story that has to do with how God uh, brings the universe into being, uh, not like in Genesis 1 where he's just talking and everything obediently follows his will, but rather through struggle, through combat even. Uh, one of the things that make Genesis 1 so familiar to us is this notion that God is the only one who's active in the process of creation. Uh, now, we, if you're religious, if you're Catholic, Christian, Jewish, you probably believe that, but, the, 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 but Scripture contains many different perspectives on these central doctrines of our faith. And the the typical creation story, the the numerically most uh, significant stories in the Old Testament, actually do not involve a lone figure uh, gracefully um, organizing the world like you have there. Rather, you have God in combat with a primordial force, which is usually personified as a monster. A monster. Um... Most of these monsters tend to be sea monsters, 
And just as soon as I say that, I know people are going to say, ah, okay, this is something that is completely beyond my ken, or it's something that's silly. Uh, let's stick with Genesis 1. Actually, sea monsters are in Genesis 1 too. We'll talk about that. But um, when we talk about the Bible, we have to remember that the Bible didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, the Bible, Christians, Jews believe, is divinely inspired, which is to say it contains a divine message. It reveals something that God wants to reveal. But uh, Jews and Christians also maintain that these are documents written by human beings, formed by particular cultural understandings, uh, shaped by particular intentions that they may have, and there are many different authors with different perspectives. And when we think of the Bible from a cultural perspective or a historical perspective, we have to remember that it, it's not the first thing out there. It's not... It's, it comes at the end of a long history of creation stories. Um, if we just go off on the basis of writing, not art, uh, writing begins more or less around 3000 BC. Okay? The Bible doesn't start to get written until about 1000 BC. So you have 2000 years of history of ancient Near Eastern cultures thinking about the world, thinking about the meaning of the universe and their place within it, uh, in which they are telling creation stories. And many aspects of these creation stories are absorbed and in some ways transformed by the biblical authors well, when they get a hold of them. So we shouldn't be surprised that many ancient more ancient ideas about creation are preserved in the text of the Bible and are used by the biblical authors for various purposes. What I want to do tonight, then, is to take this central theme of ancient Near Eastern creation stories, which I call creation and chaos, the idea that creation is not a smooth process, but a process of conflict and struggle that eventually results in the victory of the God who creates but there's a struggle that has to be undergone. I'm going to look at that theme in the Bible, see the various ways in which it is used by the biblical authors, and then, against that backdrop, we're going to go back and look at those familiar stories in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and 3, and we'll see how that background first should cause us to be more surprised about some things that we find or don't find in those stories, and also might give us new insight into them. So that's basically my goal for tonight. And I have a PowerPoint, uh, which I'll make use of. And if anyone would like that PowerPoint after the talk or want me to email it to them, I'm happy to do so. And I'll try to do the same for each of these five talks. So even if you miss one, you can still get the PowerPoint. Um, okay, so first of all, a few general remarks about the idea of creation. What is creation? Creation, even though we use the term to refer to the world sometimes, uh, it really refers to activity, to divine activity, to God's activity. Uh, and God's activity of creation in the Old Testament generally has four characteristics. And I've listed them up here in kind of abstract form. I'll try to give some flesh to them. But the first thing is that creation is always intentional. When you have a story about God creating, it's, also with the, it's always with the intention of creating something. And you might ask, why are there so many creation stories in the Bible? Well, because there are a lot of different things, different problems that need to be solved, different things that need to be brought into being. And there are, since we have many different authors, there are many different perspectives on how the same things came into being. 
But there's always an intention, and part of the, 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 the art to understanding a creation story is figuring out what the intention is, what is to be created. That might seem self-evident to some of us, but actually it's not that self-evident. And when we get to the familiar creation stories, I'll try to show you why it's not self-evident. Anyway, all creation, all creative activity is intentional. In the Bible, all creative acts by God are sovereign acts. They are bound up with the metaphor, with the analogy of God as king. Kingship, or sovereignty, was a central form of power, of temporal power in the ancient world. We think of power in terms of democracy and things like that, but in the ancient Near East, monarchy, kingship, was the basic expression of power. And so if you want to talk about how the gods are powerful, you use the analogy of kingship. And so whenever the Bible has God creating, it is always in the guise of a king. And so one of the roles of kings is to fight monsters in the ancient Near East. And that's why God fights so much in creation stories, because that's what a king does. So they're intentional. They display God's sovereignty. We should, we should be uh, ready to see the language of kingship. Also, they reveal a loving creator. This should, this should be comforting to us, but actually it's true. Even if the word love isn't always used, all of God's acts in the Old Testament are presented as providential, as seeking the good of the whole for its own sake. Uh, finally, they are ongoing, and maybe this is another one of those things that might not be self-evident. People who think creation ended in Genesis 3 actually Almost always, creation is understood to be an ongoing process. Its first instantiation, its first illustration, is the primordial act of the ordering of the universe. That's the first couple chapters of Genesis, and many of the stories we'll be looking at today. But in fact, the reason why those stories are told and retold and reused is always because someone wants to reactivate God's creative force at the time when that, when that person is writing the Psalms, the Psalms, the religious hymns of the Old Testament are replete with language about creation. And it's always, almost always, in the context of an argument, uh, especially when the psalmist is being hunted down by his enemies. He says, please, God, save me. I know you can, because look what you did back then. Surely you can do that again here with mere human enemies, you know. But there's always uh, the appeal to creation as an argument for God to act in the now. And finally, it's ongoing in the sense that there are also texts within the Old Testament that conceive of creation as something that is to happen in the future as well. There is to be a final creation or a recreation. And we'll look at those texts also. So those are features which you can expect to see as we go through some of these stories. What is a creation story? A creation story is a narrative that identifies the nature and destiny of the universe, or some part of it, by revealing its origin in God's creative activity. So this is the part about, we think that creation is about the past, and indeed it is, because it's talking about a past event, but always with a view to what is the nature of the thing we're talking about. If we understand its origin, we can understand what it is. That's the assumption that undergirds almost all creation stories. And destiny, that means what it's for. Again, all creation is intentional. Why do things exist the way they do? So that's what we'll be looking at. 
Um, final general remark. Creation is mysterious. By that, I don't mean the world we live in is mysterious. We can actually understand a great deal about our world and how it works. But if we're talking about the act of creation itself, um, now there's this doctrine that um, Jews and Christians have called creation ex nihilo, which is Latin for creation out of nothing. And this is to say that when God acts, when God acts creatively, he does so not under compulsion from some external force. Nothing forces God to create. He does it freely, out of love, out of nothing. Uh, but if we think about things coming into being out of nothing, that's not something we can actually imagine. We can only imagine it by analogy to something that we do know. Think of the Big Bang. Think of, you know, uh, when we talk about the, the, phys- the origins of the physical universe. Right? Scientists talk about the Big Bang. But that's just a metaphor. Right? The Big Bang? Well, when we think of a bang, what do we think of? An explosion. Well, the universe is indeed expanding. And you can have various mathematical accounts of what that looked like. But when you talk about bang or explosion, you're invoking a phenomenon of the world as we know it. Right? You need to have uh, various chemicals expanding in space. But hey, hey at, at the Big Bang, there was no space. Right? When you're talking about an explosion, you're talking about something that happens in time, but at the Big Bang, there was no time. So all this language that we use, this shorthand, is all metaphorical, it's all analogical. Uh, which is another reason why there are so many ways of talking about creation, because it's all metaphor. It's all attempting to grasp at something fundamentally mysterious that we can only imagine by analogy. Okay. I already talked about that there's a lot of creation stories in the Old Testament. Let me just give you some examples. Now, what I have up here is the Christian division of the Jewish scriptures. There's also a Jewish organization of them into three parts uh, called the Torah, the Prophets, and the Writings. For, for, uh, for the sake of, of simplicity here, I'm just going to give the Christian organization of the Old Testament in, into four chunks. And Christians refer to this as the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? Then there's the histories, the historical books. Then there's the poetic and wisdom books. And then there's the prophets. Every one of these four categories of literature has at least one creation story, and actually they all have many. Uh, in the Pentateuch, which would include Genesis 1 to 3, actually the most important creation story in my view is Exodus 15. The story of the Exodus, the Israelites leaving Egypt, crossing a sea, and after they cross the sea and their enemies are destroyed in the sea, they sing a song of thanks and of praise to God for the people he has just now created. This is a creation story. We'll talk about it next week when we talk about the creation of Israel as the most important event in the Bible, at least in the Old Testament. So Exodus 15 is a creation story. The histories. Um, There's a book called Second Maccabees in the historical books of the Bible. It's about a persecution the Jews underwent in the second century BC for their faith by a tyrant. And uh, this book contains the speeches of the martyrs as they're dying. And one of the ways the martyrs sort of, you know, steal their nerve and witness to the king about why they are not, why they're refusing to do his will and they're doing God's will instead, they invoke creation. And actually it's in this story that you get 
that idea of creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. There's only one creation account in the Old Testament where it says God created things out of, out of things that didn't exist. That's Second Maccabees. So we'll talk about that later as well. Poetic, wisdom books. Proverbs 8, one of the greatest creation stories in the world. Now, you might think of Proverbs as that book of sort of fortune cookie sayings, right? That brief little pithy utterances about how to live a good life. And it is indeed that, 30 chapters worth. Well, maybe more like 20 chapters worth. But it has a long introduction, and the climax of this introduction is a poem about how God created the world. And he created the world not um, as, well, he did create the world in the beginning, the heavens and the earth, but this says that even before the heavens and the earth were created, he created someone else. He created a lady named Wisdom. And through her, or with her, or at least with her observing him, he created everything else. Uh, so uh, interesting uh, in for feminist theology, perhaps. Uh, again, great creation story. Finally, the prophets. The prophets love creation. They love to invoke creation as a way to call people back uh, to the way of justice, to the way of peace, uh, to call people back to the worship of God instead of idols and all sorts of things. The longest creation story in the Bible, Isaiah chapters 40 to 55, that's 15 chapters about creation. 15. We're going to have to spend a whole day just on that. Um, talks about how God recreates Israel after a period of disillusion and exile. Every chapter invokes the language of cosmic creation, relating it to these historical events. Uh, longest creation story ever. So, just a, a little sample of some of the things we'll look at. Okay, why so many creation stories? We'll talk about that later. Um, I also talked about this already. Why? Uh, what is the most typical form of creation story? It's God fighting a monster. Uh, the Germans, the German biblical scholars of the last century, called this the chaos kampf, the chaos battle. Um, and the chaos kampf, or the chaos battle, uh, is again this uh, allusion to some sort of primordial um, force of negativity. You can say of evil if you want, of chaos, but something that, that prevents or that obstructs God's intention to create. And it shows how God defeats this, this creature or creatures. Now, there are five ways in which this idea of a chaos battle is evoked in the scriptures. One is to recall God's primordial victory over that force. And uh, again, I already mentioned that often the Psalms will say, uh, you remember, God, how you did this back then. Well, please do it again. Another way they can use it is to advertise God's ongoing containment of chaos. Um, Unlike our modern uh, concept of the universe, where nature pretty much, I mean, there are, there's disruptions of the natural order, but basically the order, uh, the order of the universe, at least a, a planet Earth, works pretty well on its own. Of course, we can muck it up, but on, left to its own devices, the world will continue on its own. The biblical authors ha did not have any such assumption. Their assumption was that the world is, is inherently unstable, and that's why you need a royal, a sovereign figure to be constantly exercising his will to hold things together. Maybe not constantly, but whenever necessary. So one of the ways you advertise God's power, his sovereign power, is to show how God actually sort of contains this chaos. He doesn't actually get rid of it, but he sort of, he neutralizes it. He even domesticates it sometimes. 
Think of a nuclear reactor. Third way, sometimes the Bible cites creation in order to exalt the God of Israel above other gods. Oops, I thought there were no other gods. Well, not all texts of the Bible assume that. Uh, in any case, God is often compared favorably to the gods of other nations or to the other divine beings up in the heavens. And it is often said, well, how, why is he such a wonderful God? Because of the wonderful things he does, such as creation. The biblical authors also have a sense of humor. They like to poke fun at human adversaries, especially foreign powers, foreign empires that try to clobber Israel. And often the prophets will depict these foreign tyrants as chaos monsters. Again, the analogy being that just as God was able to defeat the cosmic forces of instability, so too he will come forth and defend Israel against these human adversaries and he will squash them into jelly or whatever he's going to do to them. Uh, finally, uh, there are these futuristic texts that anticipate God's final victory over chaos, which is bound up with a view of the world in which the world is not eternally ongoing, but comes to a conclusion, a consummation. We call that apocalyptic thinking. And there are some texts in the Old Testament that invoke the idea of the chaos conf, the chaos battle to do that. So this is what we'll be looking at. I'm going to read just a couple of these to you. The first one is from the book of Job. We all know Job, liked to argue a lot with his friends. Well, this is one of Job's, the beginning of one of Job's arguments, where he's sort of getting his, his companions to stop uh, heckling him. And so he begins by talking about how great God is. He says, God has described a circle on the face of the waters, at the boundary between light and darkness. This is a description of the ancient view of the world in which the earth was sort of a, a flat plate that, was, that floated upon this circle of chaotic waters, the ocean or the sea. So God has done this. Uh, and then we hear about God's power. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at God's rebuke. By God's power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he struck down Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. These are indeed but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? So he's pretty amazing. Uh, but let's talk about this bold-faced section. Here is God making war, doing battle. He stills the great sea. Now, we think of the sea as a natural, neutral entity, but in the mythological language of the Near East, as well as in the Bible, the sea, Yang, uh, could actually be personified as a force in its own right, a malevolent force. So God stills the potentially uh, malevolent sea. Uh, he strikes down Rahab. You may remember a woman named Rahab from the Old Testament, from the book of Joshua. She was a Canaanite who helped the Israelites conquer the land. This is not the same Rahab. This is, uh, again, a sea monster who happens to be called Rahab. Uh, so he strikes down this sea monster. By his wind, the heavens are made fair. So there's this reference to what we would think of as the natural world. His hand pierces the fleeing serpent. Another point of clarification. When we hear the term serpent, what do you all think about? The snake in the Garden of Eden, right? Which is sometimes translated serpent, fine. But it's a different word in Hebrew. The snake in the garden, which I'll refer to simply as the snake, is nahash in Hebrew. 
When you hear about the serpent that I'm talking about here, it's called the tanin, or the taninim in the plural when we talk about serpents. Uh, these are not little garden snakes. These are dragons, basically. Think of medieval dragons. They're sort of like that, except they're aquatic. Um, so he pierces the fleeing serpent. Notice it's, it's running away from him because he's so sovereign. But he has to fight these things. And uh, so you'll notice an alternation between what we might think of as naturalistic language and supernaturalistic or mythical language. But it's all of a piece for the biblical authors. So that's an example of, of creation through struggle. Another example. Uh, this is from one of the Psalms. This is this, one of the Psalms of things are really bad for us right now. Our enemies just destroyed our temple. Why don't you stop them from gloating over, over this? It's your temple after all. Uh, why don't you act like you acted at creation? And then you have sort of a, a flashback to creation. It says, God, my king, is from of old working salvation in the earth. Notice salvation and creation are closely aligned here. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the serpents in the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. That's another name for a chaos creature. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Then it goes on to discuss the ordering of the cosmos. This is another motif we see frequently in these stories. Not just, to, not just that God defeats the monster, but he actually turns the monster into food for his creatures, for creation. And that might sound kind of unpalatable to us. After all, how good does dragon meat taste? But uh, the idea behind this, is, again, is that part of God's sovereignty is that he can take even the forces of chaos and transform them into life-giving resources. Right? So nothing is, is irremediably uh, evil, unusable. Everything God can transform into something providential for the world. So remember that thing about turning the, turning the monster into food for his creatures. Okay, here's chaos advertised. Oh, Adonai, and I'll just, for the sake of, uh, of reverence, I'll use Adonai for the divine name. Adonai is usually Englished as the Lord. Okay, oh, Adonai, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Your, your, yonder over there is the sea, great and wide, creeping things innumerable are there, th living things both small and great. There go the ships, ah, and Leviathan that you formed to sport in it. Well now, we just heard about him crushing Leviathan in the other story. Here, Leviathan is the rubber ducky, right? It's the, it's the might be big and, and amazing, but it, you know, it's not something that threatens the divine order because he's created it simply to sport and play in the water. Uh, again, God contains and neutralizes potentially destructive forces. Due to time constraints, today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.